All right, well, good morning. It's good to see everybody, good to be back. I was in North Carolina last week, and uh, Langley and the kids are still there. I've been over two years since we had gotten to see family and friends there, and so they're having a little more time uh, there, and I'll go back and join them again uh, for another visit in July, and then we'll all be back here uh, in about four weeks. So pray for me. I'm holding down the fort uh, solo, and it's hard uh, to not be with, uh, with Langley and the kids, but they're having a great time doing really well. So uh, I am available for dinners. So <laughs> if you want to invite me over, just go for it. Um, you know, we, uh, we are going through this series called uh, We Believe. It's based on the Apostles' Creed. And we're just looking kind of line by line, uh, what can this teach us and help us understand about God's word and how God has revealed himself, his heart, his desire, his plan, uh, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I hope uh, you've been uh, spending some time just thinking on and, and, and reading over the creed. Uh, as I said, we've got some great resources in the lobby. If you haven't picked up one of those books, uh, please pick one up. Uh, if you can pay, great. You can do that with your phone out there. If you can't, just take one. Uh, but we would love for you to, uh, to walk with us as we go through the creed over the summer. Uh, again, really the goal is that the creed would help lead us to God's word and just give us kind of a, a path, a structure, as it were, uh, as we look at what God's word has to teach us this summer. Um, I don't know what your plans are uh, for this afternoon, um, but uh, let's, let's just imagine that you are actually going to go to a gallery opening uh, this afternoon. Uh, and you're really excited because that gallery is featuring an artist that you absolutely love. You love their work, and you, you're super excited to go and see. So you arrive uh, at the gallery this afternoon, and you begin to make your way around viewing different pieces uh, from this artist. But one really in particular captures your imagination. You love this piece. And so it just causes you to pause. You stop before it, and you, you just gaze on this beautiful painting. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but let's, when that happens, uh, it's almost like you enter into the painting. You know, it kind of draws you in. And so you look at it, and you look at it longer and longer. And as you're looking at it, you see different things. You see uh, the, the vibrant colors kind of start to come alive. The texture that the artist has used uh, begins to become really more clear. The, the sophisticated use of light and shadow and all these things. And there's just layer and layer and layer of meaning and significance that you begin to draw from this work as you're staring at it. And, um, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's, it's really powerful when you can engage with a piece of art like that. Now, so imagine that's happened for you this afternoon, and as you're standing there, uh, one of the hosts or the docents comes over and just notices how captivated you are with this piece of art, and they whisper in your ear, just for you to hear, they say, would you like to meet the artist? And then all of a sudden you're like, you mean me? I could meet the artist who made this masterpiece? I could meet the master of this masterpiece. And who wouldn't say yes to that, right? Who wouldn't jump at the opportunity to actually get to meet the artist when you've had that kind of beauty and power just captivate your heart and your mind? And the reality is that the universe, the created universe, is a masterpiece, and it has a master. There is an artist behind the created order of the universe. And so as we come to this line in the creed, the invitation here is 
that you would actually get to meet the artist. He is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's an invitation to meet the master behind the masterpiece. And so this morning, I want us to look at this invitation uh, and receive it as an invitation. You know, the, the words we just read, I love that we read the whole chapter of Genesis 1 because it is a story about creation. And I think just pick off pieces, you violate the story. But the beginning says this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Front and center, the very beginning of God's word is the artist, the creator, the master. And the heavens and the earth, it's, it's shorthand for everything, right? That's what God's saying. I, 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 in the beginning, created everything. There's nothing I have not created, is how we say it. And so there's everything that's been created is created by this artist, this maker, this creator. And so it begs the question, well, who is this artist? Who is God? Who is the creator? It's really interesting. In Genesis 1, the Hebrew word for God here is Elohim. And what's interesting about that is that's a, that's a pretty generic term in the ancient world. Uh, there were lots of Elohims around. So Elohim is a word for God or gods. But what Genesis 1 is telling us is that this is a very unique Elohim. This is an Elohim who has created everything that is. But beyond that, in Genesis 2, chapter 4, just beyond what we read, the Bible introduces another name for God. He's not only Elohim, he is Yahweh Elohim. Listen to what it says in 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Hebrew there is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And it's telling us something really important about who this creator is. Um, Yahweh, maybe you're familiar with that name for God. It's the name that God uses to reveal himself to his people. So we encounter Yahweh uh, with Moses. Moses is called to lead God's people out of Egypt and out of slavery by the God who reveals himself as Yahweh. He is the God of the covenant. He is the God who saves. And so Israel first comes to know God uh, as their deliverer. And what's interesting is uh, only then after that do they come to really fully understand him as creator, right? Because they encounter him as Yahweh, and then later they discover that he is the God who creates. He is also Elohim. So he is Yahweh Elohim. He is the God who saves, and he is the God who creates. I just think it's interesting. We have a similar experience with God, right? We actually come to know God first as our Savior through the Son, through Jesus Christ. We come to know the triune God through the Son who saves us, and we encounter this God who is not only our Savior, but he is our creator. He is Yahweh Elohim. And so I think it points to something really important when it comes to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. How we read it uh, really matters. And this naming of God points us to how it matters. The ultimate and primary aim of Genesis 1 and 2 is to introduce us to this master artist, the creator. 
That is the main point, and that is so important for us to, to get, that that is the main point. Because what that means is Genesis 1 and 2 is not ultimately attempting to explain everything about how and when the universe is made. It's not trying to do that, and so we shouldn't try to force it to do that. I heard a great analogy um, that, I, that I think kind of brings this home this week. Um, and so it, it's, it's about Betty the botanist. So Betty the botanist uh, gets in her lab, and she receives this um, uh, uh, sample, this botanical specimen from Todd the technician. All right, so Betty and Todd, all right? And Betty takes this specimen, and she runs all these tests on it. And she gets into uh, discovering that there's actually like, ecosystems on the leaves of this botanical system. Uh, and she, she discovers there's pharmacological properties inherent in this specimen that can actually help us treat arthritis in people. And, and then she learns that she can actually map out the whole genome of this species. And so it's just wonderful. It's all this exciting stuff. And so she goes back, Betty goes back to Todd, the technician. And she says, Todd, thank you so much for giving me this specimen that you provided. And Todd, the technician, looks at Betty and says, Betty, uh, specimen? What do you mean Specimen? I gave you that on Valentine's Day. It's a long stem rose. Do you understand what I have given to you, Betty, says Todd. And what's interesting about that is in one sense, Betty knows exactly what she has. She knows and understands it in great detail. And yet, she's completely missed what it is, in a sense, She's completely missed the point of the meaning of what she's been given. The whole layers of meaning about the relational aspect, the, the, the love, the personality, the, the power of the gift that Todd gave her in that moment. So here's the point. If Betty thinks that examining the rose through the scientific method, right, through looking through a, a microscope, exhausts the meaning of the rose, she is in fact not brilliant but foolish, and I think that's true when it comes to creation, right? We can learn lots of things, the beauty and the detail of God's created order, and it is good. And we, we should see science as a good in and of itself, but it's not all there is. And Genesis 1 and 2 makes that really clear. This is not just a masterpiece of creation. It's the gift of creation, a gift from someone who loves us. And that's not to say, again, that there's anything wrong with scientific inquiry. We should study and seek to study and understand the good and orderly world that God has created. But that's not all there is to it, right? Science has its limits. And Genesis is telling us that the world, just as the rose, has more to it. So I, I found that helpful. I don't know if you found that helpful. That just helps me kind of get my head around what's happening here and how to think about it. But what's really amazing to me is you kind of get into this is, is that this masterpiece and the significance of it is revealed through the story of creation. In the beginning is a story. What we read, what Les read a few minutes ago, is a story of creation. I love how Alistair McGrath says it. He says, Genesis is the logos revealed in the mythos. What he's saying is the word or the truth of God is revealed not through abstract propositions primarily, but in a story, a true story, a true myth, if you want to think about it that way. And ultimately, a story that's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, 
but it is a story that begins in the beginning God created. So I think that leads us to some big questions. What is the creation story telling us? And I would say it tells us three things. I would say first it tells us about our creator. Second, it tells us about ourselves as creatures. And then third, about the creation in which we live. So it tells us about God, humanity, and creation. So I just want, I want to look at those things together this morning. So first, uh, what does the Genesis story tell us about our creator? First, it tells us that God is eternal and uncreated. God himself is eternal and uncreated. He is before anything that is. He himself has no beginning and no end. God is not created in any way. He is the creator. Second, it tells us that God speaks creation into being. Out of nothing, God wills something. Uh, it's hard to get your head around that. <laughs> Just, I mean, think, out of nothing, God makes something. I think what we tend to do is like, so right now, if I said, just think of, try to imagine nothing. My guess is you just imagine something, right? Like, it's hard for us to kind of get our heads around it, because if I said to you, look, what I want you to do is I want you to create something, and and if you sat down at a table to create something, you would have to have something to create it with. You would have to have raw materials, right, To, to create something, but God didn't take a bunch of raw materials and create something. Uh, he made nothing into something. He took nothingness and made somethingness. Uh, and so he spoke, and he did it through his divine word. He spoke reality into existence. Light and darkness, we're told in Genesis 1. Day and night, uh, uh, sea and sky, land, plants, animals, and human beings, ourselves. He created by his divine command. He made these things out of nothing. And so it tells us God speaks creation into being. And then the third, it tells us that God is sovereign over creation. What do we mean when we say sovereign? God is sovereign. That is to say he is in ultimate authority over and rules over creation itself. All that is, God is over, right? To say God is sovereign means he is over everything that exists. What's interesting is this is the language of kingship. In the Bible, you run into this everywhere once you begin to identify it, and it begins right here in Genesis 1. This is a theme that runs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Our reading in Revelation 4, we get this glimpse into the royal throne room of God, the heavens, where he is eternally worshipped for his work in creation. What is the song they sing? Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and power and honor for what? You created You created all things, and by your will, they exist and were created. He creates them. He sustains them. He is the creator of all, and he is the sustainer of all. He is sovereign. This is a hymn of praise to the maker of heaven and earth. He is, again, Yahweh Elohim. He is worthy, therefore, of our honor and our glory and all praise. So God is the king. He's the king. It runs all through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, and Genesis 1-2 reveals that. He's the king. What does it reveal? It reveals that he is the king who creates by divine commands. We already said that. He, he says, let there be, right? And it is. It happens. It is so. He is the king who 
names when he creates. This was, uh, in the ancient world, the act of naming was a prerogative of kings. And so he names things in his creation. God is good, wise, and just king. Genesis 1 tells us that when he creates, it is good, it is very good what he creates. God is personal and loving as a king. He is relational as a king. He says, let us make human beings in our image. The climax of the creation story is that God makes humanity, and he makes him distinct from himself. He's not God, and yet he's inseparably linked to God. He's related to him. He, he blesses him, instructs them, says, bless and rule over creation with me, is what God says to humanity. We're even told that God walks with humanity in his creation. This is the kind of king that we get a picture of in Genesis 1. This is what the kind of king, the sovereign king we have in God who rules over and reigns over creation. So what does the creation story reveal about the God we believe in? First, that he is eternal and uncreated. Second, that he speaks reality into existence. And three, he is sovereign, the sovereign king over all of creation. So second question, so that's what we learn about God. Second question is, what does the Genesis story tell us about us uh, as those created in his image? That's what Genesis 1 says. The creation, again, is the climax of the story. This is what it says in 126. Then God said, let us make Adam, uh, which is uh, the Hebrew word there. Uh, it may say man or mankind in your translation if you're looking at that. But it's the Hebrew word Adam, and it means human. It's not just the male, it's all humanity. So in other words, then God said, let us make humanity in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity, again, Adam, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And I just think this is so important right now in our cultural moment for us to grasp the significance of this. What is the basis of the dignity of human beings? It is not power or influence Access to resources, it is not our ethnicity or the color of our skin or our social status or which group we belong to. It is that we are human beings made in the image of God. David says in Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms, you formed my inward parts. God, you the creator knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So however we think about human beings, and there's a lot of confusion right now about what it means to even be a human being in our culture. Whatever we think, we have to start here, that we are made by a loving creator in his image. And so however we might think of how human beings came to exist, and I'm thinking particularly in light of human theories, scientific theories such as evolution, this is what I would say. As followers of Christ, we cannot, we cannot accept any version of those theories, and I recognize there, there are differences 
among Christians about how to think through these different scientific theories, but we cannot accept any version of a theory that claims human beings are random products of time and space. That is irreconcilable with Scripture in Genesis chapter 1. Human beings are created, they are creatures of God, and each human being is a special creation of God. And so how and when that happened is not made clear in Genesis 1 and 2, Uh, But what is clear is that human beings are distinct from all other life in the universe because God speaks personally with us, walks with us, relates personally to us. And so his eternal love has moved to create us and uh, uh, for intimate relationship with him and with one another. That's Genesis 1. So that's what it tells us about ourselves, about humanity, that we are made in God's image and likeness. Um. Just a, a, a thought on what that means. When we say we're made in God's image. Um, I, I had to rethink some of this myself this week because I, I felt challenged by this. But what's interesting is what you, what you realize is when you understand that Genesis 1, 26, 27 is talking about humanity, right? That humanity is made in the image of God. What is being said there is that we are deeply and irrevocably connected to God. We're not God, we're different. We're apart from him, but we're, we're like him, the one who created us, and that we're bound in that through him, through relationship with each other, which means basically that the image of God is not necessarily a, an individually born reality. It, 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 we are individually made in God's image, but here in Genesis 1, it's talking corporately. We as human beings, as a race, in other words, are made in God's image. We as human beings reflect God to the world in some important and unique way. And I think that's significant. Genesis tells us that this image bearing is reflected in our life together, in our relationship with one another as human beings. And specifically, it says, in our maleness and our femaleness. I mean, it's really interesting that that gets put in there. That's the DNA of creation, maleness and femaleness. This gender distinction is built into the very fabric of creation. And and while in a fallen, broken world, we have to recognize that this distinction can become disordered, um, it can become confused, uh, that there's great pain for many around this question of maleness and femaleness, and there's a lot of conversation about this in our culture. But the scriptures are clear. There is male and there is female. And so in this fallen world, I think we have to hold to the teaching of scripture about this reality as those made in the image of God who are made male and female. And it points to the fundamental nature of our relationship with God and one another. In our sameness, there is difference, right? And that's reflected in our male and femaleness and our relationship with God and one another. We reflect the creator God through the union even of male and female. Because what happens in that union? Creation. Again, reflecting the creator. And so to be created in God's image, to be human, is fundamentally to be male and female. That's what Genesis 1 teaches us. And if we deny that, we in fact deny our humanity. And we ultimately deny God as creator. So, Third, third question I think this brings up. 
what does the Genesis story tell us about our relationship to God's creation? I just want to briefly touch on this. There's so much you could say about this in relation to culture and in the environment and work. Um, But I just want to point to Genesis 128. God says to humanity, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's the thing. In our unique relationship with God, he has called us to help him rule over creation. Right? If God is the king, what Genesis tells us is that we're little kings. Right? That we actually reign with him under his reign. We rule with him under his rule. In other words, God entrusts the responsibility of creation to us, that we work with him. For human beings to reign over the earth is not licensed to abuse creation. We are called to be stewards, to embody God's own care for and protection of what he has made, to create, to build, to bring forth the latent potential of the created world for God's glory. Again, so much more we could say But maybe suffice it to say this, um, just to reflect on in your own life, uh, whether it's your vocation or your personal habits, I think we need to constantly ask ourselves in light of what Genesis is telling us, is what I am doing contributing to God's good purposes for his creation? I think it's just a really good kind of guiding question. And that can look a lot of different ways. in a lot of different places and times and for different people, but I think we need to aim for cultivating and caring for God's creation and not harming it. Um, And so am I acting in the likeness of the creator by using my talents and resources uh, that he's given me to bless creation and my fellow creatures? Um, One simple analogy. Think of the difference, what it feels like when you are taking care of your own house versus if you go to somebody else's house and you're a guest there. And you, 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 when you're staying someone else and someone else's, you kind of up your level of how much you care, right? You care a little more to take care of theirs because it's not your stuff. It's not your house. And there's just a simple reality. This world is not ours to do as we please. It is not. And so we have to be good stewards of God's creation and accountable to him. So again, to sum it up, God is our creator. Humanity is made in his image. Creation is entrusted to us. Um, So just to end, two things I want us to maybe consider reflecting on. And the first is this, that you and I were made by God and for God. You and I were made by God and for God. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is to offer um, a, a, a completely different way of seeing the world. And it's a way of seeing the world that the the world itself is starving for, is, is longing for, hungry for. Someone sent me um, uh, an article this week about um, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswani, who is, um, I think he's a billionaire. He's founded this huge pharmaceutical company. And, but he was quoted um, talking about the cultural upheaval of the past year, just everything that's gone on um, around race and gender and politics and just on and on. And he made this observation. He said, people aren't hungry for a cause. They're starving for a cause. That's what he said. They're not hungry for a cause. They're starving for a cause. And he goes on to claim that uh, declining membership in organized religion and that waning faith in public institutions has actually created a void where business and technology can enter in and give people what they're hungry for. 
I mean, what a claim, right? Especially that technology can fulfill our deepest longing for meaning and purpose. And I would agree, it's painfully obvious how desperately hungry people are. Uh, I think he's absolutely right. They are not just hungry. They're starving. Uh, but not for better ideas or better technologies. People are hungry to know how to live in this world and to know who they are in this world, which means they're ultimately hungry for the one who made this world and created them. St. Augustine famously once said, I mean, many of you know this quote, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And that is always true and even more true in our cultural moment. And so I think this question of our identity and who we are is made by God and for God. Do you know who you are? Church, do you know who you are? Are you living in such a way that you're pointing your friends and your neighbors, those you love around you, to who they really are in God, who he's made them to be and who they are in Christ? No matter what this world says or has said to you, Genesis 1 says you are God's, that he has made you and he gets to say who you are and that you are his beautiful creation made in his image. That's who you are. Second, just point of reflection, is that God is still creating. I mean, you just see this all through the scriptures. He is still creating, and ultimately, he is making all things new through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Genesis 1 and 2, there is, interestingly, no pain, right? We read that whole chapter. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no evil. There's no death. This is the world that God created, and as he created it, it was good. It was very good, but that's not the world we live in. That's not the world we know. The truth is, in Genesis 3, humanity rejected God as the sovereign king and sought to rule his creation without him. We sinned against God, and the consequences have been catastrophic. Our lives and creation are marked by pain and suffering and evil and death, all which trace back to humanity's sinful rebellion against God. And the good news, the good news, the gospel, is that he was not content to leave us. He was not content to abandon us, to leave the world this way. The gospel, John tells us that in the beginning, the word, right, the logos through which God created all that, his son, the, the personal word, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, has come and entered into God's creation. The word became flesh, John 1.14, and has made his dwelling among us. Jesus embodied God's new creation. Jesus' very life pointed to a restoration of God's intentions for creation. I've never thought about it this way, but I was thinking about this this week. That, you know, we tend to think about Jesus' signs and his miracles as like supernatural right? We use that language, and I think it's appropriate. It makes sense why we talk about it that way, but in one way, in one very real way, it's actually not supernatural. It's, it's the most natural thing that could ever be. It's, it's the world as God created it to be. When, when blind people see, that is as God created the world to be, not as it's been marred by sin. When God feeds 5,000 people, I never thought about it this way. What is he doing? He's fulfilling the creation mandate to Take the fruit of the earth and multiply it, right? I mean, Jesus is continually interacting with the world in such a way that it brings restoration to the created order, to our bodies, and ultimately to our spirits, to our, our whole person. 
And so I think we, we can begin to see that through Jesus, God is creating and making whole and bringing into harmony all of life free from suffering. That's why John 10, 10 says he came to bring us what? Life and life to the full. And he did that through the greatest miracle, which was the cross and the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his death, he inaugurated, in his resurrection, he inaugurated a new kingdom, a new world, a new humanity, one that will one day be brought to completion when he returns. So I, I, again, I think this is worth reflecting on. Jesus isn't, isn't trying to get us back to Eden. Right? He's not trying to get us back to what's been lost there as much as he's, he's taking us into a new heavens and a new earth, something even beyond what was present in Genesis 1 and chapter 2. All the suffering, all the hunger, all the lost, Christ will meet you in those places and he will heal you and satisfy you and make you whole and make you new in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. A whole new creation. Not a fixed creation. Not a piece back together creation. A whole new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. This is the God that we believe in. This is the God who sent his son for us. This is a God that we have life with and life forever in Christ. And so when we say these words, we believe, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is the God that we declare we believe in. This is the God that we place our trust in.